Good morning, campers. Good morning, campers. Today's activities include going on a little ski trip. <laughs> ah, my leg! <laughs> Lunch today will be cocktails at a racist wedding. <laughs> I'm so glad I didn't make the only note about that. And to, e okay. <laughs> and to end the night, we'll be getting the job of our dreams. So put on your sunscreen, bug spray, camp uniform, and big shoulder Giant pads. Giant shoulder pads. As we dive into... <laughs> as we dive into Working Girl. Working Girl. Just how the title is pronounced in the film. Harrison Ford looks directly at her and says, Why you, you're a working girl. <laughs> Wink. I am your camp counselor, Sammy. An ex-pro wrestler in training and current pro bodybuilder in training. And I'm Camp Counselor Sarah. I am actually a working girl, but I am perpetually stuck in the first act of this and the first act of 9 to 5. There hasn't been a magical transformation yet. We're, yes. We're here to ask, is it camp? We're diving into popular culture of all kinds to loosely identify what makes something We are camp. not here to be the definitive experts on it, but rather just talk about this often overlooked and frankly queer subgenre. Well, there's no queer subgenre in this. No, no, this is a very straight movie. Yeah. This is because I'm I'm gonna dive straight into it. This movie is a throwback. This movie was not supposed to come out in 1988. I swear, this movie was supposed to come out in like 1938. You could change nothing about it, and it would be a perfect 30s movie. Yeah, yeah, it would be. Oh, I just want to get my my leg up in the world, and you know, cast. No, Barbara Stanwyck's too much. You need somebody... Oh, who would you cast as as Tess in the 1930s version? That's the tough part. Maybe maybe somebody like Myrna Loy. Even though Myrna Loy seems like too... Too self-possessed. That's the problem with 30s actresses. They're all like very... Um, very spunky, mm -hmm. for lack of a better word. Um... Because it's way easier to imagine, like, Joan Crawford or Catherine Hepburn in the Sigourney Weaver role. Oh, absolutely. And then you put, like, Cary Grant to the Harrison Ford role. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that would be a perfect one-for-one. One. But the Tess. The Tess is the hard part. Yeah, the Tess is hard. Mm, maybe, maybe... We'll, well, that's the funny thing. Mike Nichols um, <laughs> said that he would not make this film unless they cast Melanie Griffith. And she's, she's really perfect she's in the role. She's absolutely perfect. There's... There is nobody else at the time that I think you could have cast to deliver this exact role. It's funny because the studio only agreed because they also had Sigourney Weaver and Harrison Ford on. And they're like, okay, Sigourney Weaver and Harrison Ford are big movie stars. I guess you can have Melanie Griffith. And then this is like her big, big movie. Yeah. Yeah, it's wild. It's just trying to think who would play the 1930s Melanie Griffith. I don't know. Maybe we'll keep juggling this as we, as we go along in the, in our stuff. Yeah. Maybe like Joan Fontaine, Joan Fontaine could maybe do it. Cause she's got like that shyness. Hmm. I don't know. I'm not feeling Joan Fontaine. Okay. I'm we'll, we'll tell Olivia Havland and Joan Fontaine that they each have the role and let them fight it out. Yeah. Hmm. I'm looking up 1930s actresses. So anyway, let's keep going. 
Okay. Uh, so had you seen this movie before? No, I had never seen it before. So I did the twice through. I watched it once just to be like, okay, I want to see what the the overall thing is. What's my experience going to be? Mm-hmm. And then watching it the second time just to take the notes, of course. And on the second time through, I have to say, like, the ending of this movie is fucking perfect. I love it. Oh, I was so worried because it's such like a delicate balancing act to find it not sad. And I think like that's the genius of Mike Nichols, right? That you could find this, that ending shot, the saddest thing in the world and it's not. No, no. I think this is such an unbelievably powerful ending. It's not the, she rocketed herself to the top, she's got everything she could ever ask for, yada yada you know, she's not swimming in gold or something. But uh, uh, we'll we'll get to that when we get to that, I think. I think it'll be important to Mm -hmm. talk about it there, but I I really enjoyed this is a rom-com. This is back in the days where a rom-com could be a runaway hit plus an Oscar contender plus a career maker, right? Like you don't, we just don't make rom-coms like this anymore, but the Mm -hmm. romance itself is so secondary to the actual plot. Yeah. Um, did you ever see second to act the, um, JLo movie? No. Okay, so that is, that has a very similar um, uh, setup to this, right? It's about a woman who fakes her way into a higher paying job, a higher status job that she has the experience for, but not on paper. Mm-hmm. And that's um, that's also marketed as a rom com, and it's barely a rom com. I think it's a. I think they pitched as a rom-com because there's not really this genre anymore of like quote-unquote women's pictures this is harkening back to the 30s again um but yeah this uh there's technically a romance in that because there's technically a romance in basically every movie um but to call it a rom-com is It's not the most accurate description. It's unfortunately the best we have commercially. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's that really nebulous zone of, I, I guess, like, what, what are we going to do? Like, slap the label on it and call it, like, a, a good-for-her movie? <laughs> Because it's it's a good... the problem is horror movies have such a chokehold on that right <laughs> yeah. now. What does she do? Like torture Harrison Ford for thirty minutes? It very briefly <laughs> becomes audition and then moves back out of it. <laughs> now you'll never reveal my secret, she says. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then we watch her use uh, uh, I don't know dental floss to saw off several of his fingers. Yeah, in the last 20 minutes, uh, she learns Gunkata and defeats Sigourney Weaver. <laughs> Turns out Sigourney Weaver had never broken her leg. <laughs> Instead, had it replaced with a chainsaw. But you also didn't realize that this was a prequel to Aliens because she shows up in her mech suit. Yeah, get away from him, you bitch. Oh, 
God damn it. Where's the mashup for those two trailers now? She just wants to get ahead in you know, life. But her boss is busy fighting alien queens for all of humanity. <laughs> uh, what if you use a mech suit to defeat the alien queen? Hmm, I'll run it up the line and see what happens. It was my idea to use an alien mech suit to defeat the queen. <laughs> Uh, so do you want to get a little bit into a background? Sure. What is what is the background you've brought to me today? Today we are going to talk about one of the greatest Nepo babies ever, Melanie Griffith! Perfect. Excellent. Right on point. And how she created uh, her own Nepo baby. A few months. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We're only coming to this, uh, this trend, uh... Several months after a fevered discussion about it. Fevered, yes. Also, I can't believe Jamie Lee Curtis is not the first Nepo baby that we've gone in depth on, given how much we both love her. Yeah, but I feel like with Jamie Lee Curtis, we're just like, you know what? She's her own thing. She blazed her own trail. Good for her. Mm-hmm. So, if you guys don't know... Uh, Melanie Griffith is, in fact, a Nepo baby because she is the daughter of actress Tippi Hedren, who is best known for her starring role in the Hitchcock movie The Birds. Tippi Hedren, a real Uh, name for a real woman. (laughs) Yeah, her real name is Natalie. Her her grandfather nicknamed her Tippi, and she's like, okay, I'll go with that. (laughs) I'm going to roll with this. Make a goddamn career out of it. Uh, Tippi Hedren started out as a just a farm girl from Minnesota, uh, became a model, and then that's how she transitioned into acting. But we're not talking about Tippi Hedren, we're talking about her daughter. Uh, she met an advertising executive named Peter Griffith, not Griffin, Griffith, mm-hmm. and that's how she had Melanie Griffith. He was the first of her three husbands. Melanie Griffith was the first of her three husbands? Yes, misplaced modifiers are always <laughs> funny, as the English have told us. <laughs> um, so Melanie Griffith grew up in Hollywood. She was uh, an actress and model for a few times as a child, but she was apparently very, very shy and didn't like doing it. So she like retired at the age of three. Good for her. <laughs> or something like that. Great. Uh, she... She later attended a performing arts school in Hollywood, the Hollywood Professional School, which allowed her to um, skip grades, and she graduated when she was only 16 years old. She um, had begun working again gradually as a teenager, um, including working on the film Roar. Oh, the, Are yes. you familiar with... Yes, yes the infamous yes. film roar it's a docudrama <laughs> is that... yes tippy hedron had been working in mozambique when she saw um lions and she was fascinated by them and she became like the 1970s uh tiger king she was like let's just have several big cats in our house and then we'll film it. what could possibly go wrong with this 
Uh, several <laughs> people were injured. It has been described as both the most expensive home movie ever made and the most dangerous movie ever made. So, uh, Jan de Bont, who was the cinematographer on it, was scalped by a lion at one point. Uh, the assistant director was bit in the throat and jaw. Mm. Yes. Um, uh, Melanie Griffith was also uh, bitten and had part of her face ripped off. She's had she had um, uh, plastic surgery immediately to um, rebuild her face, basically. God. Oof. Yes. Um, Roar took 11 years to make. It uh, it cost something like $60 million and made $1.1 million. Roar is its own thing that we truly do not have time to get into, but if you are fascinated at all by Melanie Griffith or Tippi Hedren, you must seek out this movie. Yeah, it took 11 years to make and probably took 11 years off the end of everyone's lives involved in it. Oh, at <laughs> least. God. Um, simultaneously, Melanie is again starting to act in sort of small roles where she's um, very much supporting roles. When she's 14 years old, she is on the set of the film The Herod Experiment, and she meets Don Johnson. And they immediately fall in love. Again, she is 14. Don Johnson at this time was 22. Oh, no. No. No, stop. Please. I, I'm sorry. When she's 15, she moves uh, in. Oh, God. This is, this is... They get engaged on her 18th birthday and get married for six months and then divorce. Oh, my God. This is what happens when I watch... Fuck, what was it called? Back in the 90s. Not his, not Miami Vice, the other one. Uh, Nash Bridges. This is what I get for watching Nash Bridges mm. when there was nothing else on TV, isn't it? <laughs> um, I want to, for this era in Melanie Griffith's life, I want to strongly recommend an episode of You Must Remember This. Um, I looked for the um, episode number. It's Erotic 80s Part 90. On bio, the title is Bioporn, Body Double, and Crimes of Passion. Um, it really gets into Melanie and Don's relationship, and I think it's very interesting. It's also just because of the reporting at the time. Karina Longworth is a very good at writer, <laughs> um, and she does a, an excellent job of covering how the tabloids at the time covered the fact that this big upcoming star was dating and married to a teenager. Um, I find it really interesting. She's covered it much better than I ever could. It's just such a, a scummy thing. We want to talk about grooming and yet here we are, Don Johnson, Melanie Griffith. Yeah, Don Johnson's in a renaissance of his career right yeah, now. Yeah, he is. Yep. Mm. Um, 
around this time, she's getting work and she's becoming very known as like the sexy young thing. You know, she's not seen as really a serious actress. She's seen as somebody with an incredible body. I'm going to read a quote here. There was a movie she was in in 1977 called One on One. It's a sports drama. And uh, in a review of it, one critic wrote, Griffith is miscast in a PG picture where she is obliged to hide her one oh, talent no. or two, depending on how you count no. it, them. Gross. Why, why do we do this? Why do we keep doing this? Yeah. Why? Mm, argh, argh, people are more than just body parts. Yeah. Um, in 1981, Roar comes out. Uh... Yes, yes. She was mauled by a lion and had to undergo facial reconstructive surgery. Um, she appears in a movie with uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and Stephen Bauer, who she marries. Around this time, her drug and alcohol addiction is really getting started. Um, it's something that she struggled with for at least the next 20 years, but she um, had... Basically, like most addicts do, periods when it's good and periods when it's worse of both alcohol and cocaine addiction. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Uh, she is, her career is really heating up here, including appearing in the Brian De Palma movie Body Double. Excuse me. Um, where it's, again, it's that Nepo baby thing. It's the same as Jamie Lee Curtis getting cast in Halloween because it's like, Oh, hey, isn't this cool? Janet Lee's daughter is in a thriller. Oh, Brian De Palma considers himself the next Hitchcock? He's going to cast Tippi Hedren's yep. daughter in, a, in his sexy Hitchcock-style erotic thriller. Uh, she's married to Stephen Bauer around this time. She gives birth to her first kid, and they then split up. She then gets back together with... Uh, Don Johnson, and they get married again. Okay. You're an adult at this point, I, I guess. Yeah. Um, you can find pieces on how they talk about each other. Um, she appears to have incredible relationships with all of her exes. Um, both of them, with basically all of her exes saying, like, we have kids together and we have to try to be nice to one another because mm -hmm. of that. Um, That's healthy. Including her, yeah, her 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 third husband, who we haven't covered yet. Um, it seems like she genuinely enjoys them. When she talks about Don Johnson, um, basically she says that they had this incredible connection and no matter how bad a marriage gets, there's no getting rid of that. And it's very touching and beautiful, except if you ignore the 14-year-old yeah, thing. Yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the other part. Yeah. Uh, around this time, she also starred in a movie that I really have to see called Cherry 2000, which is about a guy in the far-flung year of 2017 mm -hmm. trying to get new parts for his sex robot. I'm... I'm sorry, what? Yeah, yeah, it's about this guy. It's like uh, set in the dystopian time of 2017 and his sex robot breaks down and he has to get new parts and this means he has to go to a much more dangerous zone and Melanie Griffith plays like his guide to get him there and on the way, 
They fall in love. Who could have guessed it? I don't. I really want to watch this movie now. This this sounds like a movie that would be right in our camp. Wink. Exactly. Um, around this time is when she gives birth to Dakota Johnson. Wee little baby Dakota Johnson. Uh, as I said, she got cast in Working Girl. She was the only pick for the lead role. Um, she was also very high on coke during this time. At one point, you may have seen this story. Um, she showed up for work high and Mike Nichols was so mad at her that he shut down the shoot for a day, said nobody's working because you're high, and then made her pay back the cost of that day which was $80,000. I mean, it's it's a way of really driving home the point. Like, hey, listen, your habit's getting in the way of your work and everyone else's work. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was also badly in a coke addiction at the time, which I think is one of those things where it's like the things you hate most and other people are the things that you hate most about yourself. <laughs> But, but everyone else, why are you all so awkward? <laughs> Come on, be less awkward. Uh... Yeah, don't you see how weird you're making this? <laughs> Stop digging yourself into a um, hole. So before this, she was very much known as like a sexy lady and not so much as an actress. Whereas once Working Girl comes out and it's a huge smash, people are like, oh, the pretty lady actually has a brain in her head. She can act. Who would have known? Not us. Horrible, horrible critics. Yeah. Um, so she basically becomes from before she is an it girl. After this, she is a hit actress. She does a ton of movies which none of them have really stayed around. I don't think there's anything Melanie Griffith ever did that's as big as Working Girl. Yeah, it it never quite became the level that this movie sits at in the popular culture. No, I do want to see Bonfire of the Vanities sometime because I love Brian De Palma and it's supposed to be just such an epic shit show. <laughs> we might have to cover it sometime for the show. Uh, that and Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. For some reason, I always get Valley of the Dolls and Bonfire of the Vanities like kind of mixed together in my head. BV, gotcha. Yeah. So throughout the early 90s, she's working steadily, um, but again, nothing that's ever a really big hit. In 1996, she co-stars with Antonio Banderas! Uh, we love Antonio Banderas on this show. Yeah, we do. Uh, they were married for 20 years. They had a kid together. Uh, the cutest thing that I have ever heard about this is what Dakota Johnson called her stepfather. What? Because he was... She called him... Well, because he was both her poppy and Antonio, she called him Papa Antonio. Oh, it's so cute. I know. Uh, it's so cute. How many people get to call him that as well? You're just like, oh, that's the cutest thing. Um, They uh, even made a movie, another movie together that he directed and she starred in. Uh, she's in the 90s version of Lolita, which I'm like, I don't want to watch Lolita, but 
the idea of casting her in this particular role is so pitch perfect as sort of like this very annoying um, lower class type lady. I'm like, this is the most brilliant casting I've ever heard of. I just don't want to have to watch Lolita to see this <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But from what I remember with Antonio and uh, Melanie Griffith is that uh, while she didn't work as much as he did in the late 90s into the 2000s and whatnot, uh, it was clear that he was very much a wife guy and they had so much sex. <laughs> if you ever get a chance to watch the um, the Madonna documentary, I forget what it's called, but it's on one of her like late 80s, early 90s tours. Um, Antonio Banderas comes backstage at one point with his girlfriend or wife at the time, and Madonna's just like throwing herself at him. And you know what? To be fair, <laughs> shoot your shot, right? It's Antonio Banderas. I once had a dream ages ago when I was a teenager. Well, before I figured my shit out. And um, for some reason, all I remember from it was that Antonio Banderas came up to me. And he was like, uh, Sam, I'm in need of an assistant and I want you to be it. I need you to basically run away to Hollywood with me to be my personal assistant. <laughs> and here, try some espresso. And he gave me an espresso. God damn. Yeah, it, oh, e even then, there's a reason I remember it. Like, he was just so smooth. And I was like, I've never met you before, Antonio Banderas. But yes, I will <laughs> definitely become your assistant. Your assistant your brain was trying just as hard as <laughs> it, it was could. the call was coming from inside the brain <laughs> uh so she has continued to work she was diagnosed with epilepsy which apparently she says the seizures were largely brought on by stress and um this was unfortunately at the during the end of her marriage to Antonio Banderas, and she said basically she got divorced and the seizures stopped. Oh, yeah. She has also had um, skin cancer removed from her face. She has again continued working. She has been on TV. She has done a number of Broadway performances, including Roxy Hart and. Um, Mrs. Mrs. Robinson. I almost said Mrs. Doubtfire. I think she could do Mrs. Doubtfire. We wouldn't stop her. Yeah. There's never been a time, it seems, when Melanie Griffith was not working. She is not a star in the same way that she was in 1988. But she had, she seems to really, really love it. Because if she was just doing this for money or fame, she could have stopped working a long time ago. Yeah, or she would have, like, ridden the coattails of the working girl thing and, you know, just, just done the uh, Leonardo DiCaprio route of, I will only be in films that are guaranteed to be Oscar and legacy-making hits. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, it's harder because... Uh, uh, you know what the best part about Leonardo DiCaprio is, is he gets older, but the girlfriends stay the same age. Oh, I was going to say that eventually he'll die. <laughs> he is human. Yes. Yeah, Melanie Griffith has obviously had work done, whether that's yeah. uh, for her own 
desires or for work. I don't know. Um, I personally want her to live like as quiet a life as she wants to. Uh, she says that she's planning on not getting married anymore, but she has taken some lovers. Good. Great. Take those lovers. Yeah. <laughs> Make a collection. Uh yeah, she's basically like, eh, if you don't have kids anymore, then what's the point of getting married? But, you know, she's still out there. She's still uh, having a good time. Yeah, then she can kick a guy to the curb if they ever get uppity. Exactly. Um, this is... She seems to me so utterly fascinating, and I wish we lived in a world where, number one, like, her addictions took so many years from yeah. her, and so did having kids. But I wish we lived in a world where she, you know, maybe had the chance to come back in, like, Jamie Lee Curtis-type roles, but they just simply don't make that many for women of their age. Mm -hmm. It's true. It's it's such an unfortunate thing that there is still this this vein of ageism, right, going through through films and whatnot. And because if there's ever like a role of a woman sitting by a pool talking about her husbands who died of mysterious circumstances, Melanie Griffith is that actress right now. I would love to see uh, it. I know there's another woman in this movie that does a very solid runner up because she played that role, Joan Cusack. Yes. <laughs> Oh, I thought you were going to say Sigourney Weaver. No, Joan Cusack played the role in Adam's Family Values. Oh, yes, yes, <laughs> she yes. She did. I was like, Joan Cusack has had such a long career that I was like, wait, when did she do that? And I was trying to think, uh, what's that sitcom that she was on? Um, it's the remake of the Scottish sitcom with William H. Macy. Uh, oh, Shameless? Yeah, yeah, I was like... That's not her role in Shameless at all. I, I wouldn't call it a sitcom either. Woof. Yeah. Um, Melanie Griffith is probably today best known for being Dakota Johnson's mom, which is kind of weird. Yeah, I mean, I like Dakota Johnson. I think she's she's fine. I loved the way she talked to Ellen. <laughs> just <Yes. laughs> uh. well that's the thing you could have one of those memes of like tippy hedron uh, you know with the guy who looks just like ted cruz setting over the dominoes mm -hmm. where tippy hedron signed as a model ellen degeneres disgraced yeah. one straight line <laughs> uh it's true it's that's yeah that that's fucking yeah. great I, I love Dakota Johnson in Suspiria. Have you seen it? No, I keep meaning to because <sighs> um, I, I don't think I've ever seen any giallo and I really, really need to because it seems to be the kind of horror film that I would love. Well, the new Suspiria, the remake, is not as giallo as the original. The, okay. the original is like... It's the example that people go to for, like, you want to know what Jalo is? It's Suspiria. Uh, the new, the, uh, the remake of it is possibly one of the greatest remakes ever. It's two and a half hours long. I got to the end of it in theater, and I was just like, 
there is no way that was two and a half hours. That flew <laughs> by. And it's just some of the most powerful performances I'd ever seen. I'd, ne I'd never seen Dakota Johnson in any of the Fifty Shades of Grey films or anything like that. So I didn't really have an opinion on her. But coming out of that, I was just like, oh, she is possibly one of the most powerful actresses. And we haven't used her yet. Yeah, I, I, I had been telling you I saw the first Fifty Shades movie, mostly just out of curiosity. And it's not good because it doesn't... She's naturally a very charismatic um, performer on screen. She kind of grabs your attention. Mm -hmm. The camera loves her, if you will. And those movies do not take advantage of that. Um, she's clearly struggling to find like a role that will really let her be a movie star right now. Um, after the total flop that was Persuasion. Um, but I really hope she uh, she gets it. She's an interesting performer, and I want to see her do more. Yeah, I, I would highly, highly recommend S Suspiria, just because it is, it's such a thoughtful film. There's so many long periods of silence, but the fact that she gives everything to that role, because she has to dance in it, but the dancing is not... Mm, yes. It's not your traditional Hollywood dancing, like, ah, oh, isn't this beautiful? It's visceral, and it's raw, and it's animalistic dancing. And there's, there's just a lot, of, there's a lot of jumping, if that makes any sense. And when you see it, you're just <laughs> going to be like, oh, this is what he meant by jumping. Brilliant. Just, just a brilliant film. I, I, ah, maybe I should sit down and rewatch that soon. But yeah, yeah, awesome. Yeah, that's Melanie Griffith, the titular working girl. She worked, she's a girl, she's a working girl. I just want to say real quick, um, you texted me about one of the people in this movie who I had forgotten was in this movie. Yeah. Um, I'm going to say, guys, Kevin Spacey's in this movie for one scene. I, uh, I deeply apologize. I had forgotten about that. Yeah, the great thing is uh, he is just in that one scene and he is absolute scum. So... Yeah, he's playing a sex pest. Oh, Who hmm, wow, surprise. But uh, yeah, it's... I, I spent the first time watching it just being like, Kevin Spacey's going to come back, isn't he? He's going to be the reason why this all falls oh, apart. God. He's going to show up at a at a business meeting or a party that they're at, and he's going to blab the whole thing. And no, no, absolutely does not happen. We only get to see him once, and uh, he's he's pretty well humiliated in that scene. So great, I love it. Yeah. So shall we dive into the film? Let's do it. Okay. I love this movie. So the movie begins with on the uh, on the Statue of Liberty and with a Carly Simon song playing. And this song, the way that they're shooting New York, you know, it's it's this big panning helicopter shot around the statue and it comes down to a ferry to where we see Joan Cusack and Melanie Griffith inside but this this song and the way new york looks and feels this is this is the vibe i get for new york because i was raised on the ghostbusters movies and 
uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the first film, you know, and all these New York films that came out within like a 10 year span of each other. So this kind of music mm-hmm. feels so New York-y to me. When we went to New York the first time, I hadn't seen this movie yet, and my mom insisted on riding the Staten Island Ferry because she loved this movie so much. Oh, and how was it? It's great. Uh, I really recommend it. If you guys get the chance to take the Staten Island Ferry, it's completely free. Wow. Um, and you get some of the best... Like, you can, you can, um, you can pay to go on one of those boat tours around Manhattan, which I've done and is fun. Um, but like, if you want the best possible view of the Statue of Liberty and the business district, take the Staten Island Ferry. It's especially on a nice day. Like it's, I, I can't recommend it enough. And then you get to Staten Island and you're like, huh, there's nothing on Staten Island. I guess I'll take the ferry. (laughs) Well, we made it. All right. Goodbye. Yeah, and one of the yep. things I noticed as well in the credits is that Melanie Griffith is third build. She's not the top build person. And it's just, wow. Right? Yeah. yeah. Every once in a while a film does this where it's like, and the main character is here. It's, oh, okay, I guess. So. I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to want to talk about the casting of Harrison Ford when he shows oh, yeah. up in this movie. Because I, I have some thoughts. Okay, all right. I'm excited to hear it. So we're in this packed ferry and there is Joan Cusack singing happy birthday to Melanie Griffith. And it's so, so you get how important this friendship is off the hop. Their hair is aqua netted to God. And they're making their, it's like a, it's like a frill that a dinosaur has yeah. to show. Dominance. Yeah. 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 They're, they're warding off predators by making themselves look bigger. <laughs> <laughs> and they're making their way to work. And Joan is complaining that, uh, after work, she's like, Oh, you know, why don't we, you know, what time are you getting back from work? And Melanie's like, well, I've got this class and then I have this class and then I have this class. So it's it's this really excellent, very subtle way of filling you in on details of who Tess is, the Melanie uh, Griffith character, but also mm-hmm. what's happening, right? Because she's turning 30. This is the big number, right? Do you remember how you felt when you turned 30? Oh, <laughs> it was, I, uh, I, I was expecting to freak out more than I did. Um, I had a very good time that night, though. How about you? What What did you do when you turned 30? I did have a freak out. Like, the closer I got to it, mm-hmm. the more my brain started going, like, you're almost 30, and you don't have a significant other, and you don't have, like, a career career, and you're not in your own place, and blah, 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 and all these things, and my brain was just being like, you should get this by the time you're 30. This this shouldn't be a problem anymore. And here I am, 35, living at my parents' place, and I lost my job again this week. Hooray! Um, I work in a job that involves like a lot of statistics and demographic groups, um, and one of the big demographic groups is 18 to 34-year-olds. So because I had worked there for so long, everything that I expected to happen when I turned 30, I had that freak out when I turned 35 and I was no longer an 18 to 34 year old. (laughs) Yes. Statistically, it's more likely than you think. 
Exactly. <laughs> so what we understand about Tess from this interaction is that, yeah, she, she is a working girl, but she wants more for herself because she's taking like extra business classes and she's taking an elocution class as well so that she can give up the very New York accent, right? And go for something a little more, mm-hmm. quote unquote, proper. This movie is obsessed with class in a way that a lot of American movies are. No, yeah, that it's it's one of the wildest things. This is this is a very British thing. Class is very mm-hmm. English and a lot can be dictated by how you speak and how you dress. And this is not so much an American thing. So I, I understood exactly what this movie was doing just because it's so ingrained into my background. Well, it's fascinating because, you know, we say that the that the new world doesn't have class or something like that. But this movie very much says, no, it exists. It is a barrier to somebody like mm-hmm. Tess starting from Staten Island. And she is determined to not only acknowledge it, but to overcome yeah. it. Yeah. That there is the opportunity to overcome. And it, later on, she'll, she'll talk about this again. And... Yeah, she's Professor Henry Hagen St. Herself. Yeah, which is so good. It's a Pygmalion just to herself. It's a Cinderella story crossed with a Pygmalion mm-hmm. story. That's my 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 pitch. If I were pitching the tagline of this movie, I'm like, this is a fairy tale of the American dream. Yeah, yeah. Because she has the Cinderella story, but it's also anyone can make it. Yeah, she's self-sufficient in doing this as well. So, uh, she also... She does wear <laughs> sexy miniskirts and is self-reliant. Yeah. <laughs> but she doesn't do any lawyering, so, you know. No. Entirely different show. So, uh, Tess figures out from Joan. Joan is called Cynthia, but I'm going to keep calling her Joan, because it's Joan Cusack. It's goddamn Joan Cusack. I yeah. love her so much. She... the the What I talked about a couple weeks ago, I, I messaged... I messaged Sarah. We were talking about Joan Cusack. <laughs> and I said, Joan Cusack has big Sarah energy. Yes. Uh, I have long said that, like, if you want to make a movie of my life, you just get fat Joan Cusack. That's it. That's that's literally it. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I, I, and I mean that with all the most endearing things. Joan Cusack has oh, this... Yeah this verve and energy of just like being so happy for people and she has she has no chill she has (laughs) she has no chill but in the most positive way of like why aren't you happier for the thing that you're doing i'm gonna be real happy for you and she's she's got the same smile as you i was really re-watching this because i haven't watched this in years um I was kind of shocked to see how much they disagree throughout mm-hmm. this movie because Joan Cusack is very much like the voice of reason um, and how the movie doesn't feel like it has to shy away from conflict with her. No, but they never get to the dark night of the soul part. They never really have their big breakup moment, right? They're, they're no. still friends despite the disagreement, right? And that's a really healthy mm-hmm. relationship, 
Oh, anyway, Tess figures out. Yeah, Jones planned a surprise party for me later. Okay, I'll I'll try to be back on time. So she goes to work at her very busy office that does stock shit. It's it's mm-hmm. stock stuff. And she immediately has to get to work chasing down her bo- boss. <clears throat> but we we learn here that she's despite being a secretary she's very savvy at what she does and what's happening with work because she's paying attention to the stocks. She's looking at the news and how she, she's predicting how the stock will change based on like what she's reading about in the world. Right. And her bosses, of course, Mm -hmm. take full advantage of this and don't give her a single line of credit. I'm going to sing the rest of 9 to 5 right now. And guess what? The entire thing applies to this (laughs) film. Dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-
Well, we then cut to the interview with Kevin Spacey. Here he is, scum of the earth, Kevin Spacey, who's high as fuck on cocaine. They're in the back of a limo. He's like, oh, yeah, we're going to a hotel for to celebrate. Ugh. You know, it, it gets real gross. She pours a bunch of champagne on him and leaves. The end. Goodbye, Kevin Spacey. Yeah. And then he's like, when are we going to start acting? Oof. anyway she gets back to work and uh immediately sits down at her desk starts (laughs) typing into the computer and the computer starts putting up on the big stock ticker on the wall that her bosses are disgusting pigs with uh tiny dicks and that they're pimps (laughs) And now she's in HR because she's being reassigned to mergers and acquisitions. It's her third placement Uh in six months. And she's being placed with a new person who's just come in from Boston. This is her last chance or else she's fired. Yeah. So you can tell that... She's had it real rough. She She's doing the secretary game. She wants so much more for herself. And she also doesn't take shit. She is not somebody to lie down and let shit happen to her. She wants to be firmly in control of her life and what's happening. She uh, She's a striver. You get the idea that she's like... Any minute that she's not working, she's trying to improve herself, whether it's these night courses. She says she went to night courses to get her degree, and it took her five years. Like, this woman seems incredible. Mm-hmm. What a great what a great setup, I gotta say. Yeah, and it's, it's not this toxic hustle culture that we have nowadays of everything you do has to be monetizable and you know you got you got to go out and you got to grind every day and get as little sleep as possible and be as efficient in everything and all of your friends and family are business opportunities just waiting to no no she's not that she's purely in the vein of i know where i want to be and these are the steps i have to take to get me there so i'm going to do them yeah this is a product of the reagan era and it aged so well because it never feels like that's part of her motivation. It never feels like capital is the reward um, in the true <laughs> Protestant bullshit. Uh, hard work is its own reward for Tess. Yeah. Um, but it but it never feels like it backfires. This is uh, her self-actualizing. Yeah. I, I, this is so this movie is so much more positive than I thought it was going to be. I thought for sure, like there's going to be some stuff. Yes, there is some stuff in here that doesn't age great, but in terms Mm -hmm. of the main character, her, her ambition to go places and be something, I thought for sure there was going to be some stuff where it's like, Oh no, now she's going to be a dick to the secretaries or now she's going to, you know, become part of the toxic culture. It's like, no, every step of the way she's, she is wholly herself and she's trying to make everything better. Yes. It's uh, it's the fairy tale thing. Like Cinderella stays true to who she is the entire time. Mm-hmm. So she sits, sets up at her new desk and in walks the bitch Sigourney Weaver. <sighs> 
gonna say it right now. Yeah. Best part of this movie, this movie would not work without her. No, 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 no. It's you need somebody who has the previous capital in films of being a good person, of being the the protagonist, that you want to see the best in her, but also someone who can be hard. And Sigourney Weaver walks that mm-hmm. line so delicately of she's beautiful and she's sophisticated and she is charming and charismatic. But underneath that whole thing is like, oh, but Sigourney Weaver would fucking punch me if she wanted to. <laughs> I'm so curious because I don't remember the first time I watched this movie. Did you know that she was fucking Melanie Griffith over? I kept going back and forth throughout the whole film. Oh, really? I There were parts where I was like, she's going to fuck Melanie Griffith over, isn't she? She's She is going to be the antagonist. But then every once in a while, she'd say things and do things where it's like, no, 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 no. Maybe she's she genuinely is mentoring her and trying to toughen her up a bit by being unfortunately mm-hmm. honest. Or maybe there are some business practices that I'm not aware of that she's trying to ease over like at the end where she comes up with the the lie about jack getting burned once before and her keeping the paper trail clean Mm -hmm. i was like i can still see this even though i know she's done some pretty awful things i can still see this being true yeah so gourney weaver i feel like should have won an oscar for this because yeah she's so perfect in it and in a way that i think the harrison ford rule doesn't like you say you need a Sigourney Weaver star in this role. Somebody who you can look at her star persona and say, no, she's the good guy. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we can we can get an immediate look at maybe Catherine, the Sigourney Weaver character, is a deceitful person right off the hop because when she talks to Tess... Tess is like, oh, you know, it was my birthday. And Sigourney Weaver says, oh, it's my birthday next week as well. Oh, how old are you turning? Well, 30 as well. Wow, isn't that weird? We're, we're practically like sisters. So she's charming. She's endearing. But Sigourney Weaver is significantly older than Melanie Griffith. Right? And we know that. I was going back and forth. I'm like, is, is this supposed to be the film line? Is it supposed to be um, that... Tess doesn't realize her boss is lying to her the very first time we met. I just looked it up. Um, so Sigourney Weaver was, in fact, nominated for an Oscar for this movie and lost to another person that we have covered multiple times uh, on the show, Gina Davis. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't feel bad about that. That, that. This isn't, you know, Cuba Gooding Jr. waiting for Jerry Maguire, where you go like, yeah, it was good, but... There were better this year. Yeah. She was also nominated for Best Actress that year, so maybe it's a case oh. where she was never going to be yeah. a front runner. That's yeah. unfortunate. But yeah, it's it's this very, very fine line that Sigourney Weaver's walking of maybe she is thirty. Maybe she's 40 and she's just lying in order to be like, Oh yeah, I'm still young <laughs> kind of thing. I'm turning 29. Again. Again. Who would have thought? 
so she's congenial, but everything she says has an edge to it. It's not what she says, but how she says it. And you you notice that uh, Sigourney Weaver has workout equipment in her office. <laughs> it's great. She tells Mel that they are working together and even says, dress shabbily, they notice the dress. Dress impeccably, they notice the woman. And I wouldn't always take advice from a Nazi sympathizer, but Coco Chanel made some good points. <laughs> I was just listening to uh, Behind, to Behind the, Bastards. the Bastards about Coco yeah. Chanel. Yes. Yeah. But uh, to be... Uh, to... You love... But you always quote Coco Chanel on uh, fashion. Take off one, one accessory before you lose Yeah, yours. well, I, I think in terms of fashion, Coco Chanel changed the game. She really did. She changed the game. She did some incredible oh, yeah. things. Great big Nazi sympathizer. She was an amazing person if it weren't for but, the union busting and Nazism. God damn it. So I think if you just take her from like a purely fashion influence point of view, incredible human being. Right? And the fact that she raised herself up from such abject poverty. Oof. But uh, yeah, terrible, terrible human being. Anyway, so this I love Sigourney Weaver's style in this movie. It doesn't feel dated at all, which is incredible because she is like power woman eighties. She is the the if if Murphy Brown didn't exist, it would be Catherine. Mm, yes. So this is the point at which Melanie begins her slow descent into becoming a an average looking business lady. Unfortunately. <laughs> because she goes to the washroom and she takes off a bunch of her jewelry and wipes off half of her makeup and you're just oh no no don't stop please <laughs> so fortunately Joan Cusack keeps the whole style throughout the movie so yeah. whenever you're like I wish there was color again Joan Cusack the beautiful peacock <laughs> arrives so she gets called back into Catherine's office to set up a cocktail party in order to, uh, you know, help get Catherine out there and mingling with people. And Mel Tess comes up with a great idea. Why don't you serve uh, dim sum? You know, people like it. It's unusual and it's better than the usual hors d'oeuvres. And she's like, dim sum. That's a great idea. Let's do that. And she's big. She's bigging uh, Tess up a lot. She's being like, see, you're already contributing to the team. Everything's going great. And this comes to bite her in the ass immediately as we cut to the party. And guess who has to serve the steaming dim sum? Why, it's Tess with a face full of steam. It's no good. It's full of steam. <laughs> it's, it, she looks fucking miserable. <laughs> yeah. So we see her later at the office tearing out magazine articles. And this is a thing that Tess normally does. And she goes to Catherine with an idea for Trask Enterprises. And this is the big business crux of the, of the whole film. Trask Enterprises. Yeah, this is the, the MacGuffin. Yeah, it's looking to expand and it wants to expand into media. And so apparently the company has been looking solely at getting him into television and they're having a hard time. But Melanie has this idea, 
hey, if Trask expands into radio, it gets their foot in the door of media expansion. They can start in radio and work their way up. And at the same time, this safeguards the company from being bought out by Japanese investors because the FCC make it very plain that foreign interests can't buy national broadcasting corporations. So it's two birds, one stone. They will come back to this point five or six other times throughout the film. And it's like, yeah, no, we got it. We really got it. It's kind of like succession. You don't need to understand what's going, what these people are doing. They seem to care about it a lot. So I'm like, yeah, sure. They, they're invested. I don't need to be. Yeah. So she takes this idea to Catherine and Catherine immediately checks with her. Like, did you hear this plan from somebody else? And she's like, no, no, no. I came up with it myself. Oh, okay. did you talk to it with, uh, about it? with anybody else and she's like no I, I brought it straight to you and she's like, good 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 so again this can either be the I'm checking to make sure your idea is safe or I'm checking to make sure your idea has never been spoken to anyone else so that I can take it it's the heartbreaking thing about realizing it once you know that Catherine's going to try to pass this idea off as her own is Tess is just so sweet and it's the it's the first chance that any of her ideas have like gotten oxygen so she's so happy for any attention that she's failing to see these red flags yeah so Catherine says uh she's gonna try and send it up the ladder see what the boys upstairs think and uh after uh a night with alec baldwin where he he's pretty shitty to her again because that's all he's here to be, is just constantly shitty to her. We cut to Tess helping Catherine into ski boots. Because now, Catherine says, ah, yeah, I've got a big ski trip to Germany. And I love, I love Germany. Ooh, it's, isn't it lovely? She even calls up the hotel, speaks a bunch of German to them, gets a beautiful room, and she's like, well, this is going to be a magical weekend because the man I've been seeing... He's going to propose to me. And Tessa's like, well, what if he doesn't propose? And she's like, no, he's going to propose to me. And we're going to fall in love and we're going to be happily ever after. And uh, yeah, everything's going to be great. And oh. One of her lines I love is, I've indicated I'm open to an <laughs> Everything is business to her, though, right? <laughs> Absolutely everything. Like even when later on when she starts doing sexy talk, it's all with a business edge. And it's... <laughs> It's a little gross. Yeah. <laughs> and then she breaks the news to Tess that, oh, you know what? The boys upstairs didn't like the radio idea at all. And um, unfortunately, they're just not going to go through with it. I'm sorry, Tess. And Tess is like, okay, all right, I get it. So now we see Catherine skiing. And meanwhile, <laughs> Tess, like, I just want to yeah. jump in real quick here. Everything that Catherine is saying is like, we're equals. Meanwhile, she literally has Tess on her knees in front of her, doing up her boots for her. Yeah, yeah. It's a two-way street, right? Who makes it happen? You yeah. do. Which is true, because yeah. Tess makes everything happen, and Catherine takes the credit for it. Yeah. I think this movie, I first saw this movie when I was like 20. You've got to see this movie once you've had some disappointments in your work life. And you feel that, like, steam rising under your Some head. disappointments? Only some disappointments, yeah. Sarah? Yeah. 
God. Yeah, no. I was trying to be polite. <laughs> no, this this movie, <laughs> like, I'm watching it, and I'm just like, uh, I wish I was a little harder in my my own life, because I, I wouldn't stand for this, and then look back at my life, and I go, I stand for this every day. Yeah. <laughs> Sarah, why did you hold this giant mirror There's... up to me? <laughs> yeah. There's these moments where you have a close up on Melanie Griffith and it's very clear that like she's like, Don't cry. Don't cry and I'm like, Oh, honey Yeah. What you do is you dig your nails into your palm and that'll distract you enough to not cry. Melanie Griffith has the wettest eyes in history throughout this whole film. <laughs> she is constantly on the brink of tears. And it's incredible. It really is incredible. At the same time, I'm thinking, mm -hmm. how much of this is also the Coke? Yeah. Well, anyway, Catherine's now on her skiing trip, goes off a cliff, and uh, breaks her leg. So she's in a hilarious shot. It's, it's, it's so fast. It looks like a commercial that she goes over a hill and all you hear is like the goofy ah! yell. <laughs> so she calls up Tess to say, I'm stuck in Germany for the foreseeable future. Oh, Tess, I, I really need to rely on you now because my housekeeper is gone. So would you be able to go to my house and water my things and take care of this and take care of that and do all this stuff that's really not part of your job? But I need you, Tess. I, I need you, please. And so Tess, of course, says yes. Mm. And she makes her way over to this gorgeous 1980s apartment this th it's like um, it's several stories <laughs> it's multi-stories yeah there's at least one chandelier and we've seen her apartment with Alec Baldwin which is like kind of this pokey place it's wallpapered you know it's a little dark and meanwhile Catherine's place is like these light bright colors it looks like um, it's like a very French style mm -hmm big and open and she has this old looking furniture around it's so beautiful again i don't know how this movie escapes looking uh terminally 80s but there's there's this really great thing that happens with the lighting between her apartment and Catherine's apartment in that Catherine's apartment is very cold but her apartment is very mm, warm yes. right so, again, it gives you the idea of who these two people are, right? Tess doesn't have much, but what she has, she makes do with it, right? Mm -hmm. So, Tess finds a tape recorder of uh, Catherine's notes to self and, and future writing downs and whatnot, and so she just listens through it as she's wandering her house, trying her things out, and she uses the tape as part of her elocution, right? She she sets it up and she starts repeating the phrases in the way that Catherine says it, right? In, in a much more subdued and dulcet tones. And that's when she finds on the tape recorder the note to herself saying, hey, I have this idea for Trask Radio. I'm taking it from Tess. <laughs> 
Do not write this down anywhere. I'm the villain, if you didn't know. I am twirling my mustache. And of course, Tess just goes, Ah, all right then. Time to fuck her over. Yeah. She comes home to find Alec stooping another woman as well. So she leaves. The the implication yeah, is the, the thing about her Yep. <laughs> about her living in um in Tessa's house for the rest of the movie. I only realized near the end of the movie. It's kinda of sad because like at the end of the movie when she gets kicked out of Tessa's place because Tessa comes Catherine, back. Catherine. She now has nowhere to go. Catherine's place. Oh yes, when Catherine comes yeah. back. Yeah. Uh, she has to live there. She does she has nowhere else to go. Yeah. Also, house sitting is awesome. Getting to poke through somebody else's stuff is awesome. I go to a lot of estate sales for exactly <laughs> that reason. Oh, no. It's a little perverse. Yeah, yes. It's I, Sarah Murphy, of the Connecticut Murphys. Oh, you wouldn't know about it. Her money isn't banking. <laughs> <laughs> you go with a wide-brimmed hat and sunglasses on. Yeah, and they're like, you can't just cosplay as Julia Roberts at the polo scene. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I can't hear you. <laughs> Nobody talks like that anymore. Oh, do we? <laughs> I'm from an island in the Mid-Atlantic. That's not what Mid-Atlantic accent means. I'm sorry, we all speak like that there. It's a rich person island that you peasants wouldn't know about. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. So, Tess gets the idea that, fuck it, nobody else is going to make my dream happen but me. So, while Catherine's out, she's effectively put me in charge. I'm going to be in charge then. And she sets herself up in Catherine's office and pretends to be her own secretary, calls Catherine's business partner for the tra partner for the Trask deal and sets up a meeting with him claiming to be Catherine's partner in the firm and already in this scene and this is where Harrison Ford enters the movie pardon? this is when Harrison Ford enters the movie yeah well no not, not quite because first she invites okay. Joan Cusack over to Catherine's apartment and they go through her wardrobe to f try and find something to wear for the big to do that evening and Joan fucking calls her out. She's like, you're, you're being an imposter. You're impersonating somebody who doesn't exist. What if you get caught? She's like, no, 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 it'll be fine. And at one point, she hands Joan a dress who finds a note on it. The, the price tag, $6,000? <laughs> it's not even leather! That is like the line from this movie, and I'm so glad that you caught onto it. Okay, I looked up an inflation I did too. Calculator. I did too. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> so I don't know about the one that you got, but if you translate it uh, from 1988 dollars to today, and also from American dollars to Canadian, uh, this dress costs twenty thousand dollars. Yeah, I got sixteen point five American. Yeah. And then you take it to Canadian, and that makes it uh, twenty twenty one thousand. Oh my god! It's still an expensive dress today. Yeah, Jeez. and uh, and Tess has a panic attack over touching a twenty thousand dollar dress, which fair, fair enough, fair, <laughs> absolutely fair. 
And Joan gets her some Valium. And then she asks Joan to cut her hair. And here we go. The next step of the de-bimbofication, I guess. All of her personality slowly getting sucked out. She goes to a party. Her hair is nice. It's, it's fine. It's, it's nice. very Princess Diana. Yes. Yeah. And enter Harrison Ford. What do you want to say about Harrison Ford? So, I really like this character of Jack Trainer. Yeah. I and I also like the way Harrison Ford plays it. I think, you know, Harrison Ford is a very charming, sexy actor and um this character is funny and charming and sexy and all that. However, I think like the same way the Sigourney Weaver's star persona is an asset to her character of Catherine. I think Harrison Ford playing this role is too big. I think when you cast Harrison Ford in this role, you know what's going to happen every step of the way with this character. You know that he is never going to be, say, unlikable. I do think it would have been interesting if they'd cast a more unknown guy where we had more... I don't want to say trepidation, but we were less sure about how their relationship was going to fall out. Again, Harrison Ford's very good in this. I just kind of wish it was somebody doing this performance who wasn't Harrison Ford. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, I think I think what you mean is like, we know Harrison Ford's the good guy. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like, he's charming. He's Indiana Jones. He's Han Solo. Uh, I, I think he's just a touch too rough for this character as well. I mean, his, his movie star persona, it writes, mm-hmm. I, I, I think maybe this role would have been better suited for somebody a little more polished in terms of their, their countenance as well. Yeah. He's, he's very much not like the other girls as a guy. He's yeah. A, yeah. He works in finance, but He's fun and he's silly and he's willing to talk about how sexy she is and he never harasses her and he can eat a hot dog and talk with relish on his face, you know? Yeah. It's um He's a manic pixie dream stockbroker. Yeah, manic pixie stockbroker. That's that's a great word for it. <laughs> <laughs> so he sees her from across the room and he's just instantly interested in her, right? And he escapes the cutthroat business discussion in order to talk to her. She, He's charming. Turns out he's the dude she came to talk to anyway, but he keeps that knowledge to himself, saying that, oh yeah, the guy you're looking for, Jack, he's, uh, he's already gone. And they share a few drinks. And of course, you do not mix Valium with booze. Yeah, they do like three or four shots immediately because they're doing doubles. <laughs> And, uh, oh boy. boy. Yeah, it gets to her fast. And she says, I love this line too. I I wrote down a few lines because there's just some brilliant stuff. Yes, yes, I knew you were going to highlight this. I have a head for business and a bod for sin. This is a very famous line from this movie. It kind of makes me cringe, but she does sell it. She sells it. 
there would have been other people who would have made this sluttier or sexier or something. But there's just the fact that she says it so quietly in a kind of matter of fact way. I'm like, good for you, girl. I love that. I love this. So uh, her accent work in throughout this movie is great, but I think just her voice performance, oh taking out the accent stuff, her voice performance throughout this movie is incredible. She's, she's so quiet, but in control, quiet. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah. You don't get a lot of performances like this. No. So she makes a hasty exit as one of her old bosses spots her and unfortunately passes out in the taxi before she can even get going. So Jack does the gentlemanly thing here and takes her back to his place, up three flights of stairs, and takes care of her. Except for the part where he undresses and sleeps in the same bed of, uh, as her. A little bit far there. Yeah, but for 1988, this is uh, this is the most gentlemanly behavior anyone could ever possibly think yeah, of. Yeah, yeah. So she wakes up the next morning in a haze, makes a hasty exit, believing that she may have slept with Jack in a drug-induced haze. Yeah, uh, that he may have raped yeah. her, which this movie ably steps around. Just brilliantly brilliantly is able to navigate the the insinuation. Yeah. There's a very cute moment where he, when he first brings her into his apartment and sets her down in a chair and she sort of like slumps back and her head's uh, lollied over and he tugs her skirt down her, her knees just a little bit. And I'm like, Oh, that's, that's exactly the touch you need in this scene to not be afraid of him. I guess the thing I was arguing about before that you have the the star persona here also works in this scene to make it seem like he's not actually mm-hmm. a threat, um, which is really, really good, especially watching this movie 30, 40 years later going like, oh, Jesus, I cannot trust this movie to play this safely. But it does. This movie sticks all the yeah. landings somehow. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so she heads out and she heads to the meeting that she, she set up. And as luck would have it, there he is again. Oh, no. But they both play it like absolute champions, being very professional. She lays out her plan. Blah, blah, blah. Trask Radio, Japanese inve- business investors. So... She heads back to the office where she regrets every decision she's ever made. <laughs> you know, like we do all the time. Yeah, relatable. relatable. <laughs> and Jack shows up, so she strong arms Joan into pretending to be her secretary. Uh, and I love Joan Cusack so much. Yeah. We need. I need to find like a hypercut of just Joan Cusack scenes God. from this movie. Well, she she goes along with it. She is she is impressed as well. She's like, oh my god, this guy? Do you need coffee? Tea? Yeah. Me? <sighs> <laughs> and they talk about what went down. And she's like, well, why didn't you tell me who you were? And he says, well, if I told you who, who, you, who I was, there would have been no lust in tequila. Oh, lust in tequila. <laughs> Fuck me. <laughs> yeah. All this, like, 
the same thing that you have going through your head is what she does. Like, oh, you know, this was a terrible mistake. Also, Harrison Ford is looking me in the eyes and saying, yes. and I'm not thinking straight. <laughs> uh, uh, business. I must think of business. And Jack does the little lie beforehand of like, yeah, we had a wild night. And then he's like, no, we did absolutely nothing. I was an absolute gentleman. I would never do that to you. And he brought her a gift, a lovely new briefcase in order to celebrate doing this deal with her. And she's now like, oh my God, like it's actually happening. He's got a plan with a radio network in the South that he knows about. And they're like, yeah, let's do this. Let's, let's go ahead with this awesome deal idea. And they are almost caught out in Tess's lie because another business partner of Catherine's walks in and has to use the office telephone, but they managed to make it work. Joan is a goddamn star and helps her out in this. Yeah, the, the movie, I think, because it makes it so clear that all of these workplaces run on the back of these underpaid uh, women working as secretaries and assistants, there's never like a French farce feeling of doors slamming open and shut. It kind of feels like she, she has the run of the place in this office and all of the assistants are covering mm-hmm. for her. So Jack asks her to dinner, but she turns it down because she wants to remain professional. Like this is just about business for her. So later on that night, it's Joan's engagement party. And Joan is talking to Alec, trying to patch the two of them back up. This is the one thing I will fault Joan for, for the whole film. She keeps trying to get Tess and Alec Baldwin back together when he is the scum of the earth. Yeah, he he comes off better in these later scenes where like it's clear that he's running a business of his own as well and he has dreams even though he he doesn't support her. He points out, you know, you didn't really support my dreams either. And uh and you almost start to see like what she saw in him, but at the same time it feels like Joan Cusack is going this life with some Staten Island dude is enough for me. Why isn't it enough for you? Yeah. But Joan always comes through in the end, so I I don't fault her for long. (laughs) Uh, So Tess comes in, and Alex says to her, you know, you've changed, you're looking classy, uh, and, you know, it's because she's living her best life without him. And then he says, no, but I'm also super excited about the fact that I got a loan for a boat. She goes, oh, great, the boat. (laughs) he's more excited to talk about his boat than her it is in the wedding scene later on in the movie we do learn that the boat is for a business rather than just like he's a boat dude now um but yeah the the movie is not interested in his dreams because she isn't yeah they have a they have a lovely little dance to Krista Berg's Lady in Red. And if you look in the background of the scene, a very young David Duchovny is in it. Yes, he is also in the surprise birthday scene at the beginning. It's so weird. He is in the movie because he technically has a line when they all shoot when they all shout surprise. Not in the movie, he's in the castle yeah. this time out. Yes. So 
the uh, the party's winding down. They're opening gifts, and they there comes this sort of peer pressure for Alec to propose to Tess because uh, I guess it's not quite out that the two of them have broken up because he's a big old cheater. And uh, this sucks. Guess what? Don't don't try to force people to propose to each other. Let them do it when they need to. Also, don't propose at other people's events. Make it yeah. your own event. I feel like society has really swung hard on this in the last couple of years, where it's like, if you are proposing in public, you have to have this knowledge ironclad, no matter what. Yeah, because... It used to be seen as like this big romantic no. gesture, and now I think... The majority of people are like, that's fucked up. Yeah, well, because there's there's the unfortunate thing of the person being proposed to where when it happens in a big public place, you, if, if you want to say no, you're, you also might be the kind of person to say yes, because it is a public thing. Yeah. 27 people are looking at you now after he's just done a flash mob to Katy Perry's something stupid song i'm not a fan of katie perry i don't know much but, <laughs> but yeah like he's just gone out on a limb and done this big embarrassing thing and oh i'm gonna say no to him uh... this is one of the bravest things that tess does in the whole movie i think is she doesn't say yes maybe. she says maybe in like a cutesy way and everybody's kind of okay with it but alec baldwin is obviously very angry about yeah, this he, he um guys don't marry alec baldwin he uh he's an angry man yeah he loses on it on her outside and then makes the whole thing about him and she says to him i'm not steak you can't just order me and he fucks off so good for her yeah good for her at work she gets a call from jack who changes in his office as the all-female office workers watch and i'll say yeah okay i i like this i like a little bit of female gaze and the fact that he's playing with it he's he's he realizes halfway through this call that oh yeah i've been just taking my shirt off in front of you know 30 odd women on who are just outside of this glass wall so you know he does a little bit of a show-off saying yeah i look great he looks great yeah, and then they all applaud. I I miss the... I know it's stupid to say, like, why can't men just look like Harrison Ford? But, um, like, he's in good shape, but he's very clearly not a muscular guy. I wish I missed the day when movie stars looked like this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you know my tastes, but... <laughs> I, I would yeah. I wouldn't say I, it's... I knew coming into this that this was not going to be your like Harrison Ford is the dreamiest man but ever. He, Harrison Ford he is being dreamy. lifted by a a much larger man is your Yeah, dreamy. he he's he is dreamy though. He is a handsome man. He is good, nice to look at. I wouldn't say no. Yeah. Harrison, call me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, He's just an old stoner now with a with an earring. He seems yeah, chill. and his very skinny wife. Mm -hmm. So they make a plan to crash Trask's daughter's wedding, and Joan tries to talk her out of it. 
so this is because objectively yeah this is a really bad idea if they get caught out yeah but in this moment Catherine calls her up and tells her oh great news i'm gonna be back in a week so this kind of lights a fire underneath tess's ass being like you have one week left to get this plan done you have to crash the wedding this is your only option now so she meets up with Jack to talk about what her plan is and he has a small freak out because he's like I I don't want to lose my job if we got caught out on this if this whole thing goes to shit one failed deal is all that it takes but she's like no I know what I'm doing we're going to the wedding and she takes her with him to this wedding which appears to be Caribbean cruise themed and is incredibly racist it's really racist. The bride has a panic attack and she's like, the, my husband says it looks like Nicaragua out there and that we're making a political statement. And I'm like, yes, yes you are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When you've got like servers and stuff in, in, it's, it's a mismatch of all kinds of different, just like tropical island themes where it's just, oh yeah. no. Oh, you know me. I love I love a tiki drink. I love you know like a, a tiki themed bar, but at the same time, I'm not expecting the servers and whatnot to be walking around in uh, you know garb. Yeah, in Carmen Miranda cosplay. Yeah, I mean, I would love a Carmen Miranda. That's just camp. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, aside from that, we do get a great scene of Jack being so nervous about this whole thing that he downs an entire fruity drink in one go. It's very funny. Yeah, I got to find a clip of that to put on the uh, on the account because that that's one of my favorite shots in this whole movie of women staring at Harrison Ford while he just houses this thing. Yeah, he's just he just goes to town on it and then walks off with a second one. Tess winds up in the washroom with the bride as she's having a small freak out and helps calm her down. And uh, Jack rescues her from the situation, takes her out and finds Bitsy, a bridesmaid. It's everyone's favorite, Kathy Geis from 30 Rock. I forgot Kathy Geis was in this. And I got so excited, not only to see it, but for you to see her. I... I choose to believe that she is just playing Kathy Geis here. That that is the only yeah. role she has basically <laughs> ever chosen. I'm so sorry that I don't know that this this actress's name. I forgot to look it up because I, I keep forgetting to look it up. But um, I just love that she's just had this really solid work as the uh, not as pretty best friend kind of role. As the strange rich girl. Yeah, the strange rich girl. That's also a good one. At least she gets to be rich. Yeah, exactly. I'm just strange. Uh, so, Tess takes this as an opportunity to talk directly with Trask, and she manages to sweet-talk him into the radio acquisition idea, and they set up a meeting for Monday. Jack is wowed, and they leave the party before they are found out. But he is he is on the moon. He is like... You know, running down the street, kicking his heels together happy. 
Yeah. Uh, the meeting itself goes well to set things up, and on the way out of it, Jack kisses Tess. And it's it's romantic. Yeah. It's passionate. The, the idea that these two have this love for the work that they are doing and this joy at working together that is so overwhelming that finally, like, the tension peaks, it's done so well here. Yeah, so much so that them heading back to his place and making love, it's, like, it's not the big romantic sweeping thing. There isn't wind billowing in through the, 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 the billowy curtains and stuff it's no they get into the apartment and they immediately start taking clothes off and it's just like oh yeah these two have wanted to fuck each other the whole time yeah it feels very realistic i also think that the mark of a good romance movie is when you're like or any good romance is when you're like this is the only logical step for them to take at this point um Everything has been building to this, and anything else would not be true to their characters. And that's the way it feels mm-hmm. here. So we we cut to post-coitus, and in a really cute scene, she asks about the scar on his chin. A scar that now, in cinema, has more backstories than the Joker. <laughs> uh, she's about to... <laughs> Are you okay? I just... You're completely right, and I never thought about it before. It's also, like, until movies started to explain why Harrison Ford had a scar on his chin, I never noticed it. And then everybody's like, okay, we've got to explain this hideous disfigurement. Oh, God, he wears this mask the whole way through. It covers up half of his face. What could possibly... Ah, disgusting women retching in the aisles. (laughs) I thought he was a charming rogue. Also... Also, in reality, he was just in a car accident. It's, it's not a great It's not story. a story. But it, for some reason, movies keep wanting to go out of the way. Like, the second Harrison Ford is hired onto a film, this subclause suddenly lights up on everyone's contract that says, You gotta write a story in for this scar. We got 40 boys working on it. Oh my god. What what have we used so far? Uh, phaser blast. No, that was in Star Wars. Um, uh, uh I, I don't know. A, a, a wampa. No, this is a rom-com. No wampas in rom-coms. Uh, no wampas in rom-coms. There we go. That's the title. <laughs> I thought for sure it was going to be a scar with more backstories than the Joker. <laughs> no, I want to I want people to be as surprised by it as okay. I was. Alright. Uh so just before she comes clean about uh who she really is, what she's been doing, he gets a phone call from the lady he's been seeing, and she goes, Oh no, another woman and he goes, No, no, it's over with her. And this is one of the few times in cinema where I've genuinely believed a man that says it's over with her. Uh, and yeah, he 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 is straightforward the whole time. There's also this this horrible horrible part in the call where it's very clear that Catherine has said that she loves him on the end, and he just says, "Me too." Me too. 
Yeah. Yeah. So what Tess... And you watch Melanie Griffith's face fall. What Tess figures out here is that, oh, fuck, the woman he's been seeing was Catherine. The reason she hasn't been around is because she's broken mm-hmm. her leg. I have taken both of Catherine's spots in his life. Great. So then she hurries to clean up Catherine's apartment, pick up her dry cleaning before she gets back, getting everything ready for Catherine. There's a, there's a really good part here when she picks up the dry cleaning where for a brief second she forgets her, her sort of uh, little calendar book that she keeps with her, her appointment mm-hmm. book. And the dry cleaner runs outside and is just like, Miss, you almost forgot this. And you think, you would normally think, oh, what was the point of that? But we'll get to it. Oh, it's heartbreaking. Catherine shows up via helicopter, high as balls on muscle relaxers. (laughs) (laughs) Uh... I love Sigourney Weaver so much. She looks like she's having so much fun here. I don't care if she really was on muscle relaxers. It was, it's, it's. <laughs> she says, everybody can have one. And the, you can hear the doctor quietly saying, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so when they get back to the apartment, uh, you know, Melanie's been forced to uh, carry all the bags and a stuffed gorilla at the same time. And Catherine finds the (laughs) document on her computer detailing her evil plan. And again, in this scene, this is where we get that is Catherine really evil or is she not? Right? Is she using Tess? Mm -hmm. Because she then turns it into I wrote it down like this because I didn't want Jack to know that I'd gotten the idea from you because Jack has been accused of stealing ideas from other people before when really that's never happened. I hope you understand. But of course, if you had seen the document, you would have come told me, right? Two-way street. You make it happen. This is a two-way street. We trust each other. Yeah, and... Yeah, there's just still that inkling of, well, it's Sigourney Weaver, and she's a great person. Of course, of course she's not taking advantage here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, she sends Tess out to get her some pills, with Tess saying, I really have to go. And she's like, but I can't get it myself. Oh. My leg is broken. Oh. I love the way Sigourney Weaver is set up in bed here. You know, she has this enormous, enormous 80s bed and she's set up against like a dozen pillows wearing a negligee and she's dabbing perfume on herself. And it's one of those things where I'm like, maybe the continuity people missed it because she's dabbing perfume on herself so often. You know, that room reeked by the end. I don't think it's a continuity problem. I think it's the fact that she's high on as balls. Ah, that's I genuinely think this whole scene works because she's high as fuck if she wasn't high as fuck she'd be like alright let's get to the office let's take care of some stuff I want to know exactly what's happened but instead because she's loopy she's like I need Jack to come over and fuck me immediately so she's called up Jack he's on his way and Tess leaves just as Jack arrives you know hilarious you know two ships passing in the night kind of thing and um, he's clearly done with Catherine. 
Like he's so over yeah. her. It's it's really refreshing because it's not because Tess comes back while he's talking uh, with Catherine, and she listens in on their conversation to see like, oh my god, maybe he was lying to me. Maybe he still loves Catherine. And he spends the entire conversation with her, trying desperately to get out of the room. Uh, my mom is starting to watch Friday Night Lights, and she texted me one time like she's like why is coach the only good person and i'm like yeah coach is the only good man in that town and the same way tess has found the only good finance bro in all of new york oh oh yeah i mean he's also on his way to the big trask deal as well as tess mm -hmm. but the fact that she really gets the feeling of like Catherine's coming on strong. She is being like, can little, can Big Jack come out and play? Oh, yeah. This, this movie toes the line of sexual assault, uh, very well in multiple mm -hmm. cases. So Tess comes back with the drugs, and then she's like, I really have to go. I'm sorry. Drops the drugs off and leaves. And oh no. She left her appointment book with Catherine, who opens it up immediately and finds all of the Trask plans written inside of it. So she freaks out and begins to make her way over. A, clearly not that high, but B, well enough mm -hmm. to be able to change herself. A thing that she begged, she was like, oh, Tess, I'm going to need help getting changed. And now it's that little bitch. I'm going to destroy her. Sigourney Weaver in full villain mode. Uh, I'm going to just uh, spoil part of the reveal of this episode. Campiest thing in this movie. Well then. Tess makes it just in time for the meeting. And Tess even, even asks uh, Jack about ethics problems in order to test Catherine's lies out. And of course, every single lie falls apart. She's like, so you've never been accused of of any ethical things he's like no i don't i don't think i have been because she knows him pretty well by now inside and out <laughs> and uh yeah just before the big meeting starts because you know their relationship is all about getting this to work but he makes it clear like this is it for him. It doesn't matter what happens with the business deal. He tells her that he loves her and she loves oh. him too. And they're going to come through this no matter what oh. happens. What could possibly go wrong? It's, it's a really great I love you because it is, it is simple and it's mm -hmm. understated. It's not a big to do and she doesn't make it a big to do either. But there's this connection that they built. The film just makes it like, yeah, they love each other. This is great. Mm -hmm. so it's going great all the parties in the business deal agree when who should barge in but the bitch Catherine who calls out Tess as being her secretary <gasps> no it couldn't possibly Tess tries to assure everyone no 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 this yes I am a secretary but this whole thing was my plan I didn't steal it. Tess is lying in order to take all the credit for the deal. And Tess even pulls a, uh, sorry, Catherine even pulls a, oh, help me kind of thing where she falls out of her crutches onto the floor. And 
Well, Tess is ousted, and Catherine swoops in to take the credit for the deal, and Tess leaves amidst many a sorry from her. The end! That's the end of the movie! Everything's horrible! (laughs) It's just so heartbreaking, too, because... You know, Sigourney Weaver comes in with accusations and playing it big. And Melanie Griffith plays this moment so small Small. and embarrassed and ashamed. Um, It doesn't feel like it's leaning into the drama of this moment at all. Just that she very realistically wants to get out of that room as quickly as possible. Yeah, she she is an avoidance-based person. She does not like conflict. And she knows when she's caught. She's going to be honest now about i mean she was in a way she was honest all the way up to this about yes she's made this idea yes she's getting shit done and now that she's been caught out as being the secretary she's like yeah i i am the secretary and i just i had a great idea and i had to follow through with it so because none of you would have listened to me otherwise yeah well we cut immediately to joan's wedding and Tess and Alec have a chance to talk, but it turns out he's moved on with the woman he cheated on Tess with. And now, now is where it really feels like Tess is at her lowest point. Everybody else's life is moving on and up, and Tess has just been knocked backwards. She's also in the ugliest outfit of the whole movie. She's in a bridesmaid yeah, dress. Yeah, but you know that's kind of the deal with bridesmaid dresses. He also does not look good He's got ruffles down his tuxedo Yeah, he's in a powder blue tuxedo It's uh It's very Staten Island (laughs) Yeah Back at the office, Tess packs up her things And says goodbye to the girls in the typing pool And as she leaves The uh The lobby Jack and Catherine comes in with all the business people Here to do the deal And Jack walks up to her and says, was falling in love part of the deception? And she comes forward and she's just like, no, absolutely not. It was entirely separate, but she she still stands by the idea that she came up with. She made the deal happen. And this is where Jack finally stands up with her and he says, all right, I believe you. Everything that we've done so far, every every idea that's come up has been because of you. You have made this happen. So the deal goes forward either with Tess or without both of us. Uh, the only good man! <laughs> the only good man in business. And Catherine and Trask decide to move forward without him. But Tess takes this last opportunity to point out, hey, Mr. Trask, there's a hole in your plan. And he goes, I'm sorry, what? And he steps out of the elevator and she says, give me, the, give me an elevator ride to explain what's going on. When you get to the top, then you can make your decision. So, Catherine's gone up with the other business people and she pulls out all of these newspaper cuttings that she takes. So throughout the whole film... Things that seem frivolous. Yeah, throughout... These are all, like, entertainment articles. Yeah, throughout the film, we've seen her reading magazines, all kinds of things, and taking clippings from them and keeping them in a folder. 
And what we learn in this scene as she's talking to Trask, she says, first off, the hole in your plan is that, according to the society page, the big radio DJ of the radio stations that you're going to buy, he's thinking about moving to New York. And if he does, the radio stations will lose their star attraction and thus they'll lose ratings and then you'll lose money. Okay, you need to cement that first, that he cannot leave the radio station. Second, here is how I came up with the idea for Trask and Radio. And all of it's coming from society articles, People Magazine, all these kind of things that she's collecting and she's putting together, right? She's not just got an eye for business in terms of just business. She's looking at the bigger world. Mm-hmm. She's seeing these connections that nobody else is able to see. Yeah, because she is outside of the sphere that everyone else is working in. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's it's a really great scene. It's it's such a good for you, girl. Yeah. Uh, it's an and ev- and then everybody clapped, but the actual catharsis that you want from a moment like yeah. that. Yeah, and when they get to the top of the elevator ride. There's Catherine waiting outside, and Trask confronts her. He goes up and he says, So, uh, how did you get an idea for Trask to move into radio? She goes, Well, well, you know, there's just so many ideas, I, I can't remember where to begin. And he's like, No, 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 like, give me the gist of it. Well, uh, I have to uh, look back at... No, no, I'm sure you, you have an idea how you got to this. And she looks over at Jack, and she's just help me out here and he <laughs> shakes his head he goes no <laughs> it's so good so Trask catches her in this lie and he says great I'm gonna have you fired you're gone and uh, get your bony ass out of here you know how it is in finance when somebody's found to be doing something unethical and they immediately face consequences for it? Uh, come back again to the fairy tale portion of this movie. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. So, Catherine's out, and Trask turns to Tess and he says, That kind of gumption, what you did. She says, Well, this, this is where she says the line of. Well, for for you guys, bending the rules is every day, but for me to even reach your level, I don't have those options. I had to lie to get here. Mm -hmm. And he asks her, would you be willing to make these kind of calls again, almost on an everyday basis? And she says, yeah. He says, great. Then uh, you'll start on Monday at my firm and be working for me now in business stuff. Who knows? He doesn't say what kind of work it is. It doesn't matter, right? <laughs> yeah. This is a very important detail that he's like, you'll have to start at the bottom. And she's like, okay. What is it? <laughs> business work. Business. It's business stuff. Phone calls, emails, spreadsheets. No, no emails. Um, copying and pasting. No, I don't think they quite had that. <laughs> You're a little far ahead. Yeah, I was thinking what would happen if I was, uh, you know, 
as I often do, like what would happen if I wound up back in time back then? And I'd be like, I'd be so good with computers. They'd all be amazed. And in actuality, I'd just be frustrated with how slow everything is. And I'd be like, guys, I'd be so good with this if it actually ran like it's supposed to. Your kids are going to love this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so Jack goes forward with the deal and she's got a new job. And we cut to Tess and Jack are now living together, because obviously she doesn't have any house to go back to. And he even makes her a little lunch in a little lunch pail that's been monogrammed for her. Aww. And Did you catch the detail in this monogram? No, I didn't catch the detail in the monogram. I caught the detail in the outfit. What's the detail in the monogram? He has her initials on it, and... Uh it says TMT. This is his proposal to her. Oh, my heart. <laughs> I know. Oh, that's so sweet. Now, the detail in the outfit is it's his jacket. We've seen it before earlier on. Oh. But because she doesn't have a wardrobe, now because she, she's been oh. using Catherine's, she's borrowing his for business stuff. Oh, it's so cute. It's oh. so sweet. These two. <sighs> so she goes to Trask Industries. She's directed to an office at the end of the hall where she sets herself up at a little secretary desk and a woman comes over to ask, why are you sitting there? And she says, well, you know, this is where I'm supposed to sit. And she's like, no, 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 no. That's where I sit. And she goes, oh, I'm, I'm really sorry. Yeah, you sit in the office and no joke this is such a beautiful scene of yes. watching her sort of realize like oh i've made it i've done something i've finally stepped up to where i want to be and she has this beautiful conversation with her with her assistant about what's expected of her and she goes well I expect you to call me Tess I don't expect you to get me coffee unless you're getting some for yourself and the rest will just make up as we go along and the first phone call she makes is to Joan and we see Joan stand up screaming in delight <laughs> at the good fortune of what she's achieved and the final shot of the movie is Tess in in her office and the camera zooming back and away from her. And then it just fills up with the entire New York skyline in one singular shot. The thing that could have made this feel sad is you see, as it gradually pulls back, you see all of these people in offices around her. And it could feel like she's just one ant. But instead, it feels like, look at the power of all of these people achieving their dreams, too. And it just, it leaves you on such a wonderful note. Oh, I just, I'm just choking up thinking I about it. I love this scene. This, this is one of the strongest endings of any film I think we've ever done. Like, this nails the landing so hard and so well yeah, sure, she's gone into business and whatnot, and who knows what the future holds, but that's that's the joy, right? Who knows what the future holds? She's, she's finally 
making something and she's doing it in her terms and she's going to be a better person. She's breaking the cycle. She's not. Catherine got to where she was, you know, by fighting too and wound up just perpetuating the same cycle of abuse and it feels like Tess isn't going to and it's so hopeful. And also you could look at it and say, this is really sad that you know, this is 30 years on and we haven't actually improved that much. But the the movie is so good at doing what it does that I can't help but end this movie happy and hopeful, even though that I know the world didn't change as much as the ending of this movie suggests it did. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the movie is, is, yes, very divorced from the reality of what business is, unfortunately. <laughs> but I think the reality of Tess's life is more important than that. Ah, mm-hmm. uh, oh, so good. I'm so glad you liked it. I really did. I, I thought I would be in for one movie and I came out with an entirely different thing. And uh, I'm very grateful about that. So, yeah. So Sam. Time for the big question. Mm-hmm. Is working girl camp? I'm going to say for the most part, no. Not not to its detriment, of course. Mm-hmm. I think this is just such a solid movie. Um, I think Joan Cusack is camp. I think the bitch Sigourney Weaver is camp. But I think the story and its focus and what it's it's trying to do is just so sincere of yeah the the fairy tale of the american dream you can go out and you can get it how about you mhm i completely agree i think that this movie sincere is a word that we keep returning to over and over on this podcast and i find sincerity very hard to find in movies nowadays um but this movie is all about it I would say that the campiest thing in this movie is Sigourney Weaver, Catherine. Um, I think that if you were making this now, you could cast a drag queen as Catherine and the movie might be better. It would be really, really fun in sort of like a panto villain. Sort yeah. Of yeah. You could, you could have a, a, a RuPaul kind of person, right? Mm-hmm. But I, so it might be nice to get some people. Yes, color. it's a very um, white film, but I think yeah, it takes place in New York, a very white city. I right? think Tess herself is probably one of the best protagonists I've seen in a good long time. Right, she is a strong female character who is not physically strong. She is not trying to be better than men she's not trying to be better than women she's just trying to be better than herself and i think that's incredible writing not just for for now for the 1980s god do i wish there were more movies Mm -hmm. like this Do we have anything left to say about Working Girl other than you should probably watch this movie? Uh, definitely watch this movie. And uh, the theme song's a bit of a bop. Carla E. Simon deserved that Oscar nomination or win. Did she win? She oh, won. good for her. It's, 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 it's pleasant. Mm-hmm. 
So thank you for joining us today on our exploration of Working Girl. Please subscribe on your podcaster of choice. Leave a star rating and review where you can, because it always helps us to find new people who may not know what their camp Yes, is. and next week we will be discussing our very first documentary, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll be watching Pumping Iron, the bodybuilding documentary. This is available on Tubi for free, guys. Watch it for mm-hmm. free. Uh, I I will say this ahead of time, and I'll say it at the beginning of next episode, too. Yes, while I do love me a big, beefy man, um, I do not view this in that regard. This is, to me, this is like work, right? Uh, that I do take this sport very seriously in terms of what I'm trying to achieve and what I do. And these are the guys that, that made this sport what it is. So, so is this like, is this movie sort of, um, calcifying the structures of bodybuilding that we know it as now? Uh, there is a narrative of sorts that happens in the film. It is about all of these pro bodybuilders in the 1970s and their their road to the Mr. Olympia competition. But mm-hmm. what really comes through in the film is that they're people. That they do have mm-hmm. lives and that they are you know, they're friends on top of it. They hang out with each other. They, yeah, you get to see them working out a bunch and doing stuff, but you're also seeing their talking heads about who they are and what they're achieving and what they want to do and, and how they enjoy each other's presence. Because I think one of the things that's very much changed about bodybuilding, and I think this, this comes from like the two thousands personally, this is what I feel. Uh, is that camaraderie kind of went out the window for a while, that it became an every man for himself, mm. that it's cutthroat. You have to be the best and you have to kill. In or- well, not kill, but you know, you have to have that, that killer yep. instinct to get there. When really, like, the guys that they're idolizing, the guys that they're looking back and saying, like, oh, Arnold was the best. It's like, Arnold was a practical joker who loved getting high with his friends and working out. <laughs> right? That's what they did. They ate together, they got high, they, they they spent all their times working out and getting better and pushing each other, and there was a real community happening. Now, I think that we're genuinely moving back towards that community aspect. There's a lot more people who train together and will train with all kinds of different people, as opposed to, it, for a while, it very much was like, I will fucking kneecap you if you even look at me. I will do whatever it takes to be mm-hmm. the best, right? So I, I think you're going to, while you may not come out of this movie with a greater appreciation for the sport per se, I think you'll just have a lot of fun from this movie because oddly enough, it's a very fun movie. That's the thing. It's so important to you and the the general public, I feel like, knows so little about it and I know so little about it. And also, like, that's the best thing about documentaries is that you get to see these people that are so much more exciting than any fictional character ever could mm-hmm. be. And, I mean, I'll, I'll say it here, I'll say it in the next episode, too. Uh, all documentaries have bias. There is no unbiased documentary out there. 
Um, even the most anybody who says they're unbiased, they're fucking liars. There's a bias happening because it happens in the edit. It happens with how you're pointing the camera towards something, and it will happen in this film. But I think the bias here is these guys are cool. This sport's kind of cool. <laughs> like, why don't we enjoy it? And this movie caused an explosion in the sport of bodybuilding. I think there's something fascinating, too, when you get people talking about something that they love very deeply. Um, it's the same way that, like you say, that these people built a community. Um, it doesn't matter what the shared interest really is. I found this in, in podcasts and Doctor Who and Our Flag Means Death and other fandoms like that. Once you have that community, it almost doesn't matter what brought you all together because you you learn to care and love about these people so much more than the thing that brought you mm -hmm. together. And usually when you have a community like this, you can also quickly figure out who are the toxic people and just be like, mm -hmm. yeah, no, I'm <laughs> sorry. We're, we're going to push you up. But this, I don't, I, from what I remember, I can't remember the last time I saw it, but from what I remember, this movie isn't about any of the toxic stuff. Arnold does some pretty shitty things in it. When I say pretty shitty, like practical joke, pretty shitty things. But at the same time, you laugh at it too. Cause it's like, okay. All right. I can see how this would have been real well, funny. Thing. People saw this movie and they were like, Oh, that right. There's a movie star. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this is, yeah, this is the movie that made him a star. He had been in movies before this. And he would go on to be in much bigger movies after this. But this movie did uh, a twofold of not only making Arnold Schwarzenegger a name, but also making bodybuilding a viable sport. But anyway, that's, that's, that's more to discuss next week. Uh, in the meantime, you, our audience, our campers, can continue the, discus the discussion, discussion on our Twitter and our Instagram. I am at Indigo, all one word, R-H-Y-S, spelled the Welsh way. And I am at Sour Citrus Lady. You can follow the pod on at Is It Camp Pod. Until next week, wait an hour before swimming, watch out for snakes, and stay camp. Bye. $6,000? Why, it's not even made out of leather. Beautiful. Perfect. <laughs> Got it in one. What's your thing? Like it. Not too cam. No, not the way you do it.